The following sermon was delivered on April 18th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Guest speaker Mr. Joseph Hom delivered this sermon entitled, Love of the World Forbidden, on 1 John 2, 15-17. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. The Uniform Code of Military Justice contains an article regarding the punishment of conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. It's one of those rather catch-all, sweeping, ambiguous categories that can catch anything that might not be considered criminal in the civilian world, but yet represents behaviors that don't measure up to the level of moral culpability that we expect from those who wear the uniform of an officer. It could mean anything from failure to properly provide for the officer's family, bad-mouthing another officer, or cheating on an exam. Now certainly the military is not the only organization that has this type of policy in place. Many civilian organizations have conduct codes in their, co in their employment contracts, sports teams, and if you play for the New York Yankees, they even have an appearance policy that says you have to have your hair cut above the collar and you cannot wear facial hair. Dr. Piper's mustache would be excluded for that, but beards are not allowed. But why is it that they have these conduct codes in place and why do they have a, a, uh, an appearance code for the New York Yankees? What it's not there to do it's not there to tell you how you earn the right to be a Yankee or how you get a contract to play for the Yankees. It's telling us quite the opposite. It's telling their players that because we have this contract with you, because we have placed the name Yankee on the back of your uniform, we expect you to look a certain way. And John is telling us something very similar in our text here before us this morning and why we read back from the pre preceding text is that he's not telling us in our text that this command is how we earn our salvation, or how we earn the love of the Father, how we earn our justification or our adoption as sons. He's telling us quite the opposite. He's telling us that it's already because I have written to you children because your sins have been forgiven you. I'm writing to you fathers because you've known him who was from the beginning. I am writing to young men because you have overcome the evil one. He's writing us this text because he has already placed his name upon us. And having the name of our precious Jesus already stamped on our lives, that dictates how we are to live. And he's telling us in this text that if you truly love the Father, you must actively put off the love of the world. And we're going to look at this under three headings today. The command to not love the world in verse 15. The grounds for not loving the world in verse 16. And the consequences of loving the, of loving the world in verse 17. So first in verse 15, and verse 15 reads, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John is giving us two possibilities for the object of our affection. Either our affections are directed towards God the Father, or our directions are directed towards this present world. And if you're familiar with John's gospel and his epistles, you know that John uses the world in all kinds of different ways. He's all over the world with how he uses world. Because in one place, he'll say the world to mean sinners. In another place, he'll say the world to mean all those who will ultimately come to Christ. And yet in another place, he'll use the world to mean simply planet Earth. So in our present context, we need to understand what John is saying by the term world. 
And certainly there you could include he means planet Earth in that when we look at verse 17 and see the temporal nature of the lusts of this world and the things this world has to offer. But it's far more all-encompassing than that. As one commentator said it, there can be no doubt that in its present context, it means worldly attitudes or values that are opposed to God. He's really saying everything that institutes life apart from loving God, the way in which you view the world, the paradigm through which you live and see things, the very worldview through which you, cho you choose every action that you're going to take, is what he's getting to by world there. Because it's two opposite worldviews, to love the Father, to love the world. To love the Father, we are commanded, is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. To love the world is to seek the love of oneself. And any action that you seek to commit in this world, life in this world will be, will be oriented by where your love is truly at and how you view your affections. And trying to mix and match your life based on having a little bit of love of the world and having a little bit of love of the Father would be like trying to act as campaign manager for Donald Trump and Joe Biden at the same time because there's only one box on any ballot that they can check for their candidate. And anything that you do to try to get someone to check the box for Joe Biden is by its very nature getting them to check it against Donald Trump and vice versa. And John is being very clear here that that's how opposite the love of God and the love of the world is. You may not love both. You will love the one and hate the other, or you'll despise the one and be devoted to the other. But what is love? Our modern culture has all kinds of crazy and wonky ideas on what love is. But John tells us in chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Jesus summarized the entirety of the law, which we read this morning from Exodus, by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So love and obedience are intricately joined to love God is to obey God, and we cannot say that we love God if we do not obey Him. But this is not an, not an obedience to these commands that is devoid of affection. In our Presbyterian and Reformed churches, we get the nickname of the frozen chosen. And sadly, if you've spent enough time in Presbyterian and Reformed churches, you'll say that's not always false. That you'll walk into some of these churches and there'll be a cold, and dead worship a singing to God that doesn't involve joy, and just this feeling that it's a legalistic, mechanical obedience to these commandments. It's not driven from the heart. And that should never be true, because we propose that our understanding of the Scriptures in the Reformed faith is that we properly understand the doctrine of election, and the doctrine of predestination, and we properly understand that we are chosen by God from nothing that is in us. And how, in light of that, could we ever possibly not have our hearts overwhelmed with love for this God who chose us from nothing in us and prevented us from enduring the wrath that we properly deserved. But then we look at this, and uh, when we review this, these two things set opposed to one another and say that they're completely exclusive of one another, we end up in a bad place because John has already admitted to us several times and commanded us to be honest with ourselves that we all sin, and that if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. So then what, what do we make of this? 
And John tells us a little further down when he gets to, uh, excuse me, I lost my place there. John also tells us that it's the practice of sin that is what makes someone righteous or unrighteous. That those who make says, do not be deceived. Those who practice righteousness are righteous, and those who practice sinfulness are sinful. If you practice lawfulness, and if it is the practice of your heart, then it exposes that you truly are loving the world. But just because we have to realize that it is our overall practice that gives us away does not move the goalpost on this. Just because we will sin, just because we will regularly fail to meet this command and to love God perfectly does not mean that suddenly it's okay to not get there. We must continually strive to love God perfectly with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how ought we to evaluate our lives in light of this command? First, I would say that if you have no affection in your life for the Father, and you do find yourself more in love with this world and the things this world has to offer than you do the Father and don't, and don't see any fruits of that, then you might examine whether or not you are truly converted and whether or not the love of the Father is in you at all. But to those who do know that they love the Father and yet acknowledge that they come up short and desire to do better, how might we examine ourselves to view these fruits and to strive to love the Lord better on a daily basis? The Westminster Catechism in its exposition on question 105, which is a description of idolatry, uses our text tonight as its proof text when it says that idolatry is self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate settings of our mind, will, or affections upon other things and taking them off of him in whole or in part. And I'd ask you if your life evidences keeping your mind on God fully and not taking it off of him in whole or in part towards the moderate affections of this world. If I were able to ask your family members, those closest to you, whether or not your life truly reflects that the God is your, your God, your Father, is your greatest priority in life, would they be able to say yes to that? Or if I was to ask your checkbook where you spend your money, if that properly lines up with love of God, or if I had your day planner and could see how you spend your time, would that be indicative of true love of the Father, exclusive of love to the world? And how is it evidenced in your prayer life? Because what, the things that we pray for, the things that we spend our time doing, the things we spend our money on, reflect where our heart truly lies. And we must make it our fervent prayer to ask God to change our hearts on this. And we must spend time with Him, because any relationship in which you seek to grow, you spend time with one another. For those of you who are married, when you first got together with your spouse, I'm sure you spent every moment that you could with one another because you love spending time with them. And to say that you love someone but then never desire to spend time with them and never seek to think affectionate and pleasing thoughts about them and seek their goodwill is to deny that you love them at all. And think of that when you do fail. Think of our text when Joshua, in our Old Testament reading, Joshua told them that when they went back to love the Lord 
and to cling to him and to hang on to him as a child clinging to his father's legs. Cling to your God and plead with his help to put the love of the world to death. And so if we have the command to not love the world in verse 15, verse 16 gives us the grounds for not loving the world. And verse 16 reads, For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, pardon, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now what are these three things that John lists out here for us here? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. First, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the flesh is, we think of as all those things that pertains to the body itself, in ways that we would seek to please ourselves, gratify the flesh, gratify ourselves bodily. And of course, sexual sin comes up to mind almost immediately, and that is, we know from our own history of our own lives, and from the history of reading the Bible and modern society, that sexual sin is right there at the top of the list. But this is far more encompassing than just sexual sin. It involves anything that you might use to please your body and in a way that's inordinate to your love that you espouse for God. For example, it could be the abuse of alcohol. It could be uh, abuse of food. It could be smoking, you know, uh, smoking beyond the point that your conscience allows. It could be any of these things that we, anything that we use our body to do that is not pleasing to God. And a good litmus test for determining whether something is truly a lust of the flesh or if it's a lawful and legal use that is perfectly acceptable for us to be doing is to consider if you can pray for this thing before you do it. Can I pray and thank God for this meal I'm about to eat? Can I pray and thank God for this cigar I'm about to enjoy? Can I pray and thank God for this and insert any action here? Because anything that's lawful to do according to the law of God we should, can and should, give thanks for. And if you can't, in good conscience, give thanks to God, you might consider whether or not it's truly a lawful use of the flesh. And then the lust of the eyes. If we think of the lust of the flesh as those things that our body craves, the lust of the eyes would be all those things that we see in the world around us that cause us to crave them. It's largely covetousness. Again, First thing that we tend to, tends to come to mind when we think of the lust of the eyes is sexual pornography and sins of that nature. And given the statistics that are out there, we would be wrong to not address that. Because if that is a part of your life and the statistics bear out that reformed or not, Christian or not, it is a huge problem in all of our lives, especially with the advent of the internet. If this is something that is a part of your life, it needs to be dealt with and it needs to be dealt with now. And it's not something to play with. You need to find someone who you trust, who will help you, who will rid your life of that. And with the advent of phones, this has gotten even worse because you have a virtual pornography machine in your pocket at all times. And if it need be that you dispose of that from your life, then it's better to enter into paradise without a cell phone than to be cast into hell with your iPhone glued to your hand. And then the boastful pride of life. It's another one that hits really close to home for everyone. Because we all like to boast, but we don't tend to, tend to do it outrightly as Christians. We're far more creative with how we boast about things. 
we'll have a find a backhanded way to slip into a conversation, something about what an excellent student we are, or how much money we make, or how great a vehicle we drive, how big our house is compared to someone else's. We, we're very sneaky about how we work that in. But Paul has told us, and we sang in the hymn here previously, that we can boast in Jesus Christ, and anything boasting beyond that is sin. But in the Dutch world, where I come from, we have yet another sneaky way of slipping boasting in. Because we would never pull in in a shiny new car in the parking lot and say, look at my new truck. Thing cost me 65 grand. That would be outrageous, and you would never say that. That would be an embarrassment. But you might roll in with an old rusted thing that you paid $1,000 for, not because, mind you, you only had $1,000. You had plenty of money in the bank. You chose to buy that because that was more godly. So you roll in with this rusted beast that you could put your feet through and drive like Fred Flintstone, and may very well have to drive it like Fred Flintstone based on what this thing looks like and how it rattles. It'll make a Dutchman's heart beam with pride to be able to pull in and say, yeah, but you spent $65,000 and I only spent 1000 Was it so he could give the rest of that to the church? And if it was, all the worse to brag about it. We have an infinite number of ways of being prideful in our lives. So then why these three particular sins, these three together? There's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of interesting, if you read the commentaries, interesting ways of addressing these three sins, but if we look back through the history of the Bible, we'll find the two major temptations in the Bible are Eve and Christ. And both of them, the devil reached out to them in these two ways. We're told that Eve, right before she reached for the fruit, saw that it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable to make one wise. And so she reached and she took and she ate. She gave to her husband and he ate. And all of posterity, including everyone in this room, has had to suffer the consequences. And when the devil came to tempt Christ, after he had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness and was hungry, the devil came to him and said, turn these stones into bread. And he took him on the high mountain and said, see all these kingdoms of the world? I will give all these to you if you will bow down and worship me. And he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. God will not allow your foot to, will not allow you to be hurt. But Christ resisted the temptation. And therefore, we can have a, both an example and a proper propitiation for all of our sins and someone who, to whom we can flee when we are tempted. And we have a high priest who has been tempted like us in every way. And then he says that these things are not from the Father, but are from the world. Referring back to our conversation about the paradigm in, verse, in, chapter, in verse 15. That all of our life and every decision that we make and all of these potential lusts that come out are squeezed through how we view the world. Children, if you've ever played with Play-Doh, you have that little gizmo that you squeeze and the Play-Doh comes out at the end and you can set it to spaghetti or you can set it to star shapes. How you have that end of that little tube oriented is precisely what you're going to get out. You're not going to set it to spaghetti and get a heart. You're not going to set it to a star and get a square. You're not going to have your life fixated 
on the Father and see your actions be the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And if you have your eyes fixated and your heart and affections fixated on the world, you're not going to see actions that are pleasing to the Father. So a couple of questions that you might think about. We've already mentioned that if you can't pray over this, it's quite, quite likely that it's not a lawful use of the flesh. And then thinking about the little children's song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, and ridding your house, not only your phone, but ridding your house of anything that causes you to lust or to long for things that, not only sexually, but things that aren't yours, things that God has not given you, things that cause you to have inordinate affections towards anything that God has given to someone else. And when you find yourself coveting or being boastful or being proud, then repent and plead with God to teach you contentment with your own condition. But then one last thought is, maybe you could say that you know, these boastful pride things aren't you and you don't have to worry about where you're spending your money because you're a poor, broke seminarian or you're a pastor and you have to spend all your money on theology books and all your time listening to podcasts. and That's wonderful. But why is it you spend all your time doing those things? And what is your ultimate goal in spending your time on those things? Is it because you know that doctrine leads to doxology and that a proper knowledge of God leads to a further glorying in all that he has done for you? Or is it so that when the person comes along and has the theological question for the guy next to you that you can chime in and really show off the answer they have or just to get good grades or just to be the guy in the know? Because an orientated life towards loving the Father is to glorify him. And one oriented towards the world is glorifying himself. And so if we've seen in verse 15 the command to not love the world, and in verse 16 the grounds for not loving the world, in verse 17 we see the consequences of loving the world. Now we really shouldn't need any further exhortation here. If we've been given, this is what love of the Father looks like, this is what love of the world looks like. If we love the Father, that ought to be enough for us. But God is very gracious and reminds us that the reward for serving the world is a whole lot of very little and very temporary rewards. Certainly, we would, we would admit that there is joy in sin for a season. There's a, there's a momentary pleasure that comes along with it. And for a little while, we might be able to convince ourselves that this is, this is a good life. But ultimately, it's passing away, as verse 17 reads, The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now notice that he didn't say, it's going to pass away, or will pass away. It's not just a future tense there. It's passing away already. The light is already shining in the darkness. The victory has already been won. The battle has already decided at this point, to hit yourself up to love of the world is to join the already side, not just the losing side, but the side that is already lost. And the other thing that's passing away, both in the ultimate sense, is that anything that we can accumulate, any toys that we can gather up for ourselves, any sin that we can find ourselves delighting in for a period of time, is very short. And there's severe consequences for many of these in this life and in the life to come. But even if you were one of those few who got to enjoy a lascivious lifestyle and 
be rich and famous for all of your time on this world. 70 or 80 years is just not a whole lot compared to eternity. And as Solomon, who had all that anyone on this world could ever ask to have, hundreds of wives, nearly limitless wealth, looking at all that he had accumulated and trying to find out if he couldn't find some type of lasting joy in this, that it's all vanity. It's all like a puff of wind on a cold morning. You breathe out and you see it and it's gone. That's the end result. Because the world's treasures, they just don't travel well. You can't take them with you. And then John says, but. In theological, uh, in other places in the passages of the Bible, but is often one of those delightful words. But God, but the one who does the will of God will abide forever. However, having spent a bunch of time talking about how it is that we have failed on this, and how we failed to do the will of God, it doesn't necessarily immediately inspire a whole lot of confidence to say, the one who does the will of God abides forever. Because we acknowledge that we don't do the will of God, and we fail to do it in thought, word, and deed on a daily basis. But once again, I would point back to the practice that the one who practices righteousness is righteous and the one who practices lawlessness is lawless. But then in an ultimate sense, the real beauty of but the one who does the will of God abides forever is that it's not our obedience. It's not our doing the will of God that gains us this abiding forever. Christ has already done the will of God perfectly for us. And in him, we do stand to inherit eternal life. In him we stand to inherit our Father's cattle on a thousand hills. In him we seek, we seek to live in an eternal city where, the, where there is no need of the sun because Christ is the light in it. And there's nothing that this world can offer that can compare to that. And I might ask you then, do you long for the Lord's appearing? Because often in our American world, it's easy to get comfortable. We have a lot of stuff. Life is easy. We have things, we have easy lives, we have heat and air conditioning and electricity and hot showers, and this world is easy to start and fall in love with. But can you, can you sincerely say, Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sighted? And if you cannot, then I would once again encourage you to look at where your ultimate hope lies and where your treasures truly are laid up. But for those of you who can say that, yes, you love the God, yes, you love the Father, and yes, your ultimate hope is in Him, and you do long for the day of His appearing, then I would remind you that we've been commanded in this text that if you truly love the Father, you must actively put off the love of the world. We've received the command to not love the world, and the grounds for not loving the world, and the consequences of loving the world. And if you find yourself struggling, then I encourage you to run and cling to your father. Cling to him like that child clinging to his father's leg. Plead with him in repentance. And remember that 
as our catechism says of true repentance, it includes that full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. That it's not simply a repentance of saying that you're sorry or grief over the sin and hatred of the sin, though that it must be involved. But it truly is seeking with all your heart from now on, from every day, to love the Father more and to make Him the central, central point of your life and the focus of your life. And then take comfort in the assurance of His love, which He has promised to us. Because from now until forever, there can be no greater joy than to rest secure in our Father's love. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.